In the name of the Father, and the Son, and God's Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. Well, for those of you who may not have been with us the last couple of weeks, um, we're focusing this fall on on, uh, 27 chapters, the last 27 chapters of one of the um, one of the most wonderful pieces of Hebrew scripture uh, in all of the Bible. Um, as I've been saying uh, week by week, uh, this is the very dramatic story of a group of people who had a devastating thing happen to them. Um, and it's the story of what they learned in that time of darkness, uh, what they learned about themselves, what they learned about other people, but most importantly, what they learned about God things that proved, and things that have proved over the ages to be incredibly helpful to people. And we are using, uh, for these few weeks, the metaphor, when the bottom drops out, what then? Uh, Not only because it describes what happened to the Hebrew people 2,600 years ago, um, but because all of us, I think, once we get to a certain age, though certainly in different degrees, all of us become familiar with what the poets call a shipwreck of dreams. Uh, I think Bill Beekner was right when he says, life has a way of working us all over before it is done. And so my real hope for this series is that we'll give you a sense of resources when you find yourself up against it when it seems like everything that you have depended on somehow collapses. Because this is not just a story uh, about something that happened once upon a time many years ago. It is a story about the nature of the God who is as present to us today as God was to the Hebrews long ago. So, those of you who have been here, you know the story, how in the middle of the 6th century B.C., uh, the people of Israel were conquered by a cruel invading army, the Babylonians, and a horrible dictator by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. So the temple was destroyed. The city was leveled. 25,000 of the best and brightest were carried 600 miles into exile, and for the next 50 years, they lived under that regime. And in those years of exile, profound things began to happen to this group of people. For one thing, they began to learn things about themselves that they needed to be reminded of. I had a friend who was a hospital chaplain, actually, at one point, who used to say that that verse, he maketh me lie down. Um, He used to say that that's a difficult one, but also a redemptive one. Sometimes when events force us to slow down, to look more deeply at what we're doing, sometimes that is the moment of fresh beginnings. And sometimes it leads us to a a better perspective on our lives. So the Hebrews learn, first of all, things about themselves. But they also learn things about God, as we were saying last week, they learned that those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. But as we were saying last week, that strength doesn't always come in the same way. Sometimes God breaks into our lives and God miraculously solves our problems for us. Much more often, God comes alongside us and God 
helps to solve problems with us. And then there are some times where God just doesn't change the circumstances of our lives, but rather God gives us the grace to walk and not faint. And therefore, we are the ones who are changed. So towards the end of this 50 years of disillusionment, a new voice was lifted up among the exiles, a prophetic voice that brought them a message of hope. Isaiah points them to the horizon where to the east of Babylon a new nation is on the rise, the Persian Empire, and a great young priest by the, prince by the name of Cyrus, who Isaiah says is going to redeem them in very unexpected ways. And that brings us to our story that Bob was reading to us this morning. Isaiah dares to say to the people of God that God is going to use a Gentile, somebody that you don't know, um, to do something that you don't deserve, something that is beyond your dreams. So this morning I want to look very briefly at Cyrus, and then I want to unpack some of the implications of this, not just for those exiles, but for us this morning. Now, those of you who love history, you know that Cyrus is considered to be one of the three great conquerors of the ancient world. Cyrus, Alexander the Great, and then the Roman emperors that followed. So Cyrus rose up in power uh, in the area that today we would call Iran. Um, and he unified the largest empire in the ancient world before the time of the Romans. But perhaps even greater than the extent of his conquests is the way he is remembered even by those whom he conquered. The great um, historian Herodotus remembers him as the ideal king. He was sort of the King Arthur of his day, I suppose, an absolute genius in being able to read the signs of his times, and a master opportunist in being able to detect where the winds were already blowing and like a great sailor figuring out how to use those to his advantage. But the most interesting thing about him is that he is forever considered to be a merciful liberator. Wherever he conquered, he gave people power of their own. So unlike the Babylonian Nebuchadnezzar, who would just demolish and deport people, Cyrus always took an interest in and always supported the intellectual and artistic treasures of every culture. And as a result, even those whom he conquered thought of him as the ideal ruler. So this prophetic voice announces to those exiles that God is going to use Cyrus as his anointed one. In Hebrew, that word is Messiah. It was used for every king of Israel. In Greek, that term is Christ, the same term that we use for Jesus. And that announcement comes as both good news and bad news. The good news is God is going to redeem us. God is going to let us go back to our homeland. The bad news is that God is not going to use one of the chosen ones, one of the chosen people. God is going to use a pagan Gentile. 
I think you and I don't understand the whole biblical vision of reality unless we begin to realize that it is all, and I mean all, grounded in a grace that is utterly deserved. The very same way that you were born. What did you do to deserve to be born? What does any of us do to give us a right to this day? It is all gift. And coming to terms with that may be one of the real secrets of joy. As someone said, I've had a wonderful life. I'm just sorry it took me so long to appreciate it. So the good news is that God is going to deliver them. The bad news is that God is going to use this pagan Gentile. You see, from the beginning, God had said to the descendants of Abraham, I want to bless you. I want to give you a land of your own. I want to give you descendants more numerous than the, than the sand on the shore. And through you, I want to bless all the peoples of the earth. The chosen people had very little trouble understanding that they were God's favorites. God loves me. God wants to give us all of these things. They had no trouble with that. What the, the trouble what they had was the idea that they were blessed in order to be a blessing for others. St. Augustine used to say, God loves each as though there were none other in the world to love. And God loves all as God loves each. And let's be honest, this is the struggle we all have. Like Dr. Seuss's Grinch, our hearts are mostly two sizes too small. It's easy for us to revel in the grace of God when it comes to us. Ah, but to look at others through those eyes, not so easy. It's hard for us to deal with the fact that God is as merciful and loving to my enemy to the person who doesn't hold my political opinions. J.B. Phillips wrote that wonderful little book. You remember the title? Your God is Too Small. And I think that's a good way to sum up the implications for the Hebrews and for us. This God that the prophet knew is better than we dare to imagine. This God is not only more powerful, but more ingenious. This God's mercy is wider, as the old hymn says, than most of us give God credit for. So very quickly, I want to in, unpack three implications that that has for us when the bottom drops out. The first is that there really is only one God. The Hebrews were living in a polytheistic culture, people worshiping many gods. And I probably don't need to tell you that people in our culture bow down at all kinds of altars. It was a wise person that said you can determine your creed by just looking at your appointment book and your checkbook. But the prophet reminds us everything that exists and everyone belongs to God. I remember reading that um, 
St. Francis of Assisi used to have this unusual practice of praying standing on his head. And when people would ask him why he assumed that unusual posture, he said it helped him to realize that all of creation hangs literally on God. I mean, if you think about it, that's really true. If you look at the world standing, everything has kind of a settled, especially these heavy pews, has a settled sense to it. If you look at it upside down, it's like the whole world is hanging like a chandelier hangs from the ceiling. Everything hangs. Everything literally depends. Everyone is only because of God. So the distinctions that we sometimes make between something being secular and something being sacred, this person is chosen and this person is not chosen, those are really meaningless. And that means, of course, that God can use everything and anyone in the accomplishments of God's purpose. I remember doing a, a funeral service once uh, for a man. I didn't know the family very well. And as we always do, we sat around and we were just talking about him. And it became very clear that this was a man of, of some genuine goodness but he also had some pretty major flaws, and everybody in the family knew about that as we were sitting there. And as I listened from somewhere, without my even realizing it, the words came, you know, things don't have to be perfect in order to be good. Things are not always as black and white as you and I like to pretend. And what that means is that the old Puritan notion that things have to be pure before God will have anything to do with them, that is just an illusion. God can use folks even when they are not aware that they are being used. Now, I think we do have to make the distinction between saying someone is an instrument of God and someone is a servant of God. I mean, the goal is to be a servant, right? The, God, the, the, the goal is to be aware of God's hands moving in your life to be aware of God calling you and, and saying yes to that calling. However, God can use people as an instrument even when that person is completely unaware of it. And you and I have probably all known um, really good things that have come through people who had no intention of being used by God. There is only one God, and this God is not only more powerful but more ingenious than we give God credit for. The second implication is that there is always more going on in any moment of history than we realize. There is more happening than meets the eye. Faith, therefore, is learning to see above sea level, S-E-E -E level. This is not a new idea with Isaiah. You remember in the book of Genesis, um, the children of Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons, and you remember Joseph was his favorite. And uh, that meant that all of Joseph's brothers uh, were very jealous of him, right? It meant that Joseph grew up as a spoiled brat. And so one day his brothers beat him up. They threw him into this um, big valley, and he was taken into slavery and wound up as... Um, 
a prisoner in, in Egypt. And yet in the midst of all of that, there was this sense that God's ingenuity was taking these things and using things that were meant for evil and bringing good. In fact, at the very end of that story, Joseph says to his brothers, when things have finally come for full circle and they are in Egypt again reunited, he says to them, you meant it for evil. God used it for good. And that is really sort of our ultimate hope for our lives and for our world. The image that comes to mind, I know some of you are poker players. Um, the image that comes to mind is a card game and God is the dealer. But God has dealt cards around the table that all of us have to play. God doesn't control the cards that you play. The good news is that God, God is still in the game and God holds the trump card. Our ultimate hope is that God is able to take just about everything and do just about anything with it. So mystery is the context of our lives, which ought to give us a little bit of a sense of humility. We know only in part, says the Apostle Paul. We see only as in a mirror dimly. If you can trust that at this very moment, more is going on than you know, that can become a powerful basis of hope. And that leads to the final implication, which really grows out of the first two. And that is that God's other name is surprise. If, I, as Isaiah says, if God's ways are really not our ways, if God's thoughts are not our thoughts, then why should we think that we can anticipate precisely what this other is going to do? When Isaiah says to his people, God is going to deliver you, they said, yes. When Isaiah says, God is going to deliver you by a pagan Gentile, they said, whoa. And suddenly, they had to take their little images of God and they had to fashion something bigger. I know people who actually say there is a real ministry of disillusionment when our illusions are shattered by something bigger. And that's what happened to these exiles. And I would suggest to you that our God is not bound by the seven last words of any church. You know those words. We never did it this way before. Behold, God says, I am doing something new. And that is why, um, as you have heard me say before, I think for believers, despair is really presumptuous. Because it is saying something of any given situation, it is saying something about God that we are not in the position to say. We simply don't know enough. And even more, who are we to say what the God who made all things, the God who owns all things, the God who can use all things, who are we to say what this surprising God can do with a situation that we might deem hopeless? I heard about this minister who went one, uh, late one night to the hospital in the town where he was serving. When he got there, he found one of his church members, a dear older woman, sitting in a dimly lit um, hospital hallway. 
And she proceeded to tell, unfold the story of what had happened in just the last few hours. She and her invalid husband were totally dependent on their only son. He lived with them. It was his job that supported them. And on the way home from work that day, he had been in a terrible car accident and was critically injured. When the call came saying that their son had been injured, the husband, who was already in a weakened condition, had a heart attack. As she sat there in that hallway, she had a son in one room and a husband in the next, and she didn't know if either of them would make it through the night. You talk about the bottom falling out. And this minister said he was absolutely amazed when that woman of a very simple faith said to him, you know, this is terrible. I can't even begin to fathom the way my life has been changed by what has happened tonight. But then she went on to say, but I'm not going to draw any conclusions about this until God has finished with it. I simply don't know how all of this is going to work out. You see, the essence of faith is to say of every situation, it is just too early to tell. Who knows? If God could save his people by the likes of Cyrus, if a cross can become the greatest sign of God's power and God's love, who are we to despair? Can you live your life in that kind of openness? Can you live into that kind of hope? Isaiah says, the Lord is my stronghold and my sure defense. He will be my savior. Therefore, be not afraid. Go in courage. Go in hope. Amen.